The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Funding for the Capital Weekly Podcast is provided by the California Endowment and by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Greetings and welcome to the Capital Weekly Podcast. I'm John Howard. I'm joined by my colleague, Tim Foster. Hello. And our special guest today is Daniel Zingali. Uh, who, hey, John. If, hey, Tim. If, you, if you've been in Sacramento interested in politics over the last 20 years, then you know all about Daniel Zingali. He's a, been a fixture here, but he just retired. So we're going to ask him about that, about retirement. And you can't see this on the podcast, but in back of him is this fabulous bookcase. And it looked like a Persian carpet down there, by the way. So obviously, you're living the good life somewhere in the foothills, <laughs> right, Daniel? Welcome to the show. Thank you, John. Pleasure to be here. I am living a good life. Foothills is interesting. We were talking to Buffy Wicks. Uh, gosh, this would be more than a year ago. Now. I mean, a while back. And she grew up in the foothills too, near um, in the in Placer County, near Cool. Yeah. And she said she thought she was the only Democrat in the whole area there. Her see her parents, you know. So it's um, it's changing. Yeah. This area is really changing. I we noticed just from the we've been here for more than fifteen years, and we noticed just from the two thousand sixteen election when it was almost exclusively Trump signs um, in this area to 2020, where it, actually I would give the edge to Biden in terms of signs on properties around here. Uh-huh. Really? It, was, it was sort of 50-50, but felt maybe a little bit more like 55 Biden. So that's fascinating to watch that transformation you, out here. Daniel, you were a cabinet secretary to governors. You were the first director of the Department of Managed Healthcare. Uh, you've really been on the inside for a long time. So what I guess my Question, basic question is, what do you make of the events now in the year or so, approximately, that since you left, since you retired? You know, John, I think like everyone um, who loves this state and loves this country, I'm troubled often by um, the events of the past year in particular. Um, you know, I think, you know, for me, what I tell my friends who I'm so grateful are still in public service, I, I am truly grateful for the ones who are sticking it out as I sit here observing from retirement, but I encourage them um, to just continue to challenge ourselves uh, about what is not working for so many people about the system, about politics, about government. And, you know, I'm not just talking about extremists who violently storm the Capitol. I'm talking about uh, millions of people who feel left behind, who haven't had faith in increasingly are losing faith in our systems, government, politics, media, um, every institution, as you know, the confidence level is dropping. So I think for those of us who have the privilege to have worked or still be working in any of those sectors, we have to we have to ask ourselves very tough questions about you know who are we leaving behind, what can we do to rectify that, and we all have to hold ourselves accountable. I think for the still growing gap in uh, the economy, opportunity, and therefore political power. And um, you know I think that that's the work. We really need to do as a nation for us to come together. Do, do you think there's a sea change here in California politics coming because of the pandemic? Do you think the long-term effect of this will be creation of some third party, uh, splintering of the existing parties, or more of a coming together? You, you any notion about that? I do think it is. You know, I, I, I think at some point I realized, and I'm sure others have said this, that um, COVID-19 is not um, an incident. It's an era. 
we're living in an era in the same way that, uh, in a different way uh, from World War II, but World War II was an era. And to suggest that after World War II, we were gonna go back to a, some kind of pre-World War II normal would have been ridiculous. It changed everything. It changed the economy. It changed our relationships with each other, changed our place in the world. And I think COVID is an era. And so we will not come out of this like we were before. We will come out of it changed. Um, will it splinter the parties? I mean, one party has already splintered. The Republican Party, as you know, is, uh, is a shadow of its former self, um, kind of two parties. Um, but it's not clear whether there's really a base of support for the more moderate uh, yeah. side of the party. The Democratic Party, I have to say, um, what a remarkable institution. You know, now that I've had some distance and some time to think about it, just that that the way that party has endured, uh, the the fact that it encompasses today, in this last election at least, young people and you know old liberals and all races and all religions, um, still a, a good number of lower income people, especially people of color, um, and now more well off people in the suburbs. It's it's a remarkably resilient and enduring party with a remarkably big tent right now, holding together Democratic Socialists and corporate Democrats on the same tent uh, to win an election and, and garner the votes of what um, seven million more votes than the Republican candidate for president. So I, I'm actually, you know, I've been a Democrat all my life, so I'm probably not I'm the most objective person on this. But I also was in the Schwarzenegger administration and consider myself somewhat postpartisan in certain respects. But I have to say, I am in awe of the Democratic Party, uh, just in terms of world history, how it stands, I think, alone in its capacity to endure and thrive. You, you see that nationally, or is that more specific to California? I, mean, I was talking about nationally, but but certainly in California, um, the party is, is proving to be uh, remarkable in that it uh, has hold together a, a strong majority, which yeah. encompasses and spans all those groups I was talking about. Um, so... So yeah, I just I think it's something to kind of whether you you like the Democratic Party's principles or not, I happen to like them. You have to kind of uh, respect it's it's how formidable uh -huh. it is at this moment in our history. I found it really interesting watching the polling that Nancy Pelosi's numbers are actually up, and you know Nancy Pelosi is such a lightning rod among the Republicans of the right wing, but uh, lately her numbers are actually up overall. That's interesting because they spend a lot of time and energy on taking her down. But she deserves that credit. You know, I, I worked against Nancy Pelosi in her first run for Congress um, in San Francisco because she was running against a guy named Harry Britt, who would have been the first openly gay member of Congress at that time. And wow. he was a friend of mine and a good man. Um, and so I was so excited. I actually came from back east to volunteer for his campaign, um, you know, worked my butt off like a lot of people did to try to get Harry elected. You know, I viewed Nancy as sort of a dilettante. She was, you know, came from a privileged family of what I viewed as a uh, politically privileged family. She was a fundraiser. But I, I had the privilege of introducing her years later in Washington, D.C. And I, I was able to say from the heart that I was wrong about her. Uh, she proved to be a remarkable champion for ordinary Americans, in my view, um, including lesbian and gay Americans, certainly. Um, she was a champion through the, the dark years of the AIDS epidemic. Um, I had the privilege of working with her uh, in later years. And I have to say, um, the right woman won that race with all respect to my friend, Harry Britt. And she's done us proud. They say politicians have long memories. Uh, did, didn't, did she remember that then? Did she, did, well, I mean, you know, I teased her about 
<laughs> I teased her about that. And, um, you know, I think, you know, she, we're both Italians. We're both Italian Catholics, Nancy Pelosi yeah. and I. And uh, we are we are slow to forget, but but our faith commands us to forgive. So I do believe that she uh, she forgave me for that. You know, one of the incredible stories right now, uh, which it's getting covered, but it's kind of it's overshadowed by the COVID nineteen, is the unemployment EDD issue, the the eleven billion dollar fiscal problem over there with benefits being directed to the wrong place in in some cases hundreds or not thousands of inmates being able to tap into these things every day it seems like every other day i'll turn around there's another patrick mcgreevy story in la times that makes the earlier one look small i mean it just gets incrementally worse so where do you think that's going to end and what kind of heads will roll if any after that i mean those stories like that one um, break my heart in particular because i think they they contribute to um to lessening people's confidence in government at a time when we need people to be confident in government. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, so it's, it's, it's really a shame. Um, I hope though, that as we look for greater accountability and um, transparency and all the things you need to keep that from happening again, that we also examine just as rigorously the billions of dollars that more privileged people and corporations in this country are taking sometimes legally because with all their money and power now, they're able to rig the system. Um, and, you know, frankly, that's where the money's really going. If you want to follow the money. Uh-huh. Um, yes, you can find some, you know, uh, incarcerated person whose rap sheet is horrible, um, who got some money and probably sent it to their family, who, you know, may well be struggling economically. That's not right. But I tell you what really gets me riled up is the, you know, the insider, kind of more privileged people still pillaging our economy um, without shame and, you know, being able to use their money and influence to make sure their allies keep it that way. And that's, that's not sustainable. That's not good for this country. It's not good for anybody. It's not even good for the billionaire class who think they're benefiting from it ultimately. How do you fix that? I mean, I'm old fashioned in this way. I think, you know, if you if you want to change the fact that a very tiny percentage of people in this country have all the wealth, most of the wealth and therefore most of the political influence, you have to change that. And the only way you do that is by moving some of that wealth to the many millions more people who don't have enough for their kids to go to college, to not worry about paying the mortgage, um, to have health care when they need it. So, you know, the old fashioned way to do that is to have rich people pay taxes um, and poor people Pretty pay less taxes. There, Daniel. Yeah, it's, it doesn't sound radical. And a vast majority of Californians and Americans think we should have billionaires and their corporations pay their fair share. And yet um, they keep escaping that. You know, we, uh, we know why, because they use some of that money uh, to influence the people who make the decisions about tax law and so on. You know, we were talking before, uh, before we got on the podcast here about the about recall issues. Um, so that is now viewed as a more serious threat than it did originally. He, I think he's gone through five recall efforts already that didn't go anywhere. This one seems to be more serious. It's got some money from a former gubernatorial contest contender, John Cox. It's got some other money too. Where do you, do you see anything happening with the recall? And so how, how perilous is this for, uh, for Newsom right now? Well, I, I believe the California people will stand by Governor Newsom um, in the way that he has stood by us through this very, very difficult last year in particular. Ultimately, I think they will. 
I learned the hard way um, that one should take these recalls seriously because I was working for Governor Davis. I was cabinet secretary at the time of that recall election when at first people thought it was outrageous and impossible. Um, and of course, it turned out otherwise. So I, I think, you know, you, you and, and this is something I really respect about Gavin Newsom is he never takes for granted the people of California or their support. When he was high in the polls, first year I was there working with him, you know, the poll numbers were pretty good. And like all, you know, staffers in the governor's office, I like to share good news with the governor. So, and it was my job because I was the communications guy to kind of, you know, keep an eye on his relationship with the people. So I would go in there and say, oh, you know, we've got another PPIC poll out today or another poll showing you're in really good shape. And he always said, I don't want to hear it. I want you and everybody on the staff and me to act like we're behind and have to earn people's confidence and support. And he would, I mean, the only time I actually ever remember Governor Newsom and I raising our voice to each other was one time when I was just trying to give him some poll numbers and he kept interrupting me and saying, just stop, stop telling me the good news. And I wouldn't stop because you know I was already an old man by then who didn't care and didn't want didn't you know take orders very well, so I kept you know just raising my voice to giving him his poll numbers and finally the chief of staff Anna O'Leary had to intervene and she said Daniel will you just stop the governor doesn't want to hear the poll, <laughs> poll numbers, but uh, anyway I think that bodes well for him because uh, he he's not going to take anything for granted and um, and you shouldn't. Did you guys have internal polling? I know the campaigns do and the reporters never get to see him. Uh, or usually you don't get to see them, but I just, I, I never commissioned any um, while I was working for, for Governor Newsom. I don't recall that. Uh, I just remember watching the public polls and there were plenty of them to get a sense. Cause you know, you have a, you have a mix of them. They all have different methodologies slightly. So you could, if you could, you could spot the trends without spending money on your own poll. Certainly when I was working for Governor Davis, our outside political team, Gary South was sort of our point guy then uh, they were they were polling all the time because we were, you know, as we got closer and closer to the recall election, we were trying so hard to get him to the threshold number he needed to stay in office that we were, I remember being briefed on polls on a regular basis. What was there, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, so you, you've been in three different administrations. Can you kind of compare and contrast your experiences there and maybe uh, give some insights on how they govern differently? I can take a shot at that. Um, so, you're correct. I served in a, as you know, a senior level, a senior advisor position to um, three governors. I also worked for a fourth uh, for Jerry Brown when he was the youngest governor. Wow. Uh, back in the, yeah, in the early 80s, uh, but not at a senior level. I was at an executive fellow in his office. I did have some, some uh, interaction with him and his senior team. I was, I think, 20 years old, maybe 21. So four administrations, but three, I think, to your question. Um, yeah, you know, I, I, I've had a little bit of time to think about this now, Tim and John. Um, I think being governor is really hard. It's a very tough job uh, <laughs> that I would never want, even though I'm a person who loves politics and believes in government. Um, so I just hats off to these people who are willing to do it. Um, you know, I, on a, it's very personal for me because you, you get to know when you're in that position in that small circle inside the governor's office, you get to know that individual very well, very quickly. Gray Davis, I had known for many years when I went to work for him. So he's the one I have the, the deepest history with. Um, and so just, you know, watching him go from staffer in the governor's office, um, like many of us have been, to 
uh, I first worked for him in the California Assembly when he was already just a very impressive, ambitious, um, focused guy, um, you know, all the way up to um, governor has just been real interesting. He, and I'm still friends with him and with his wife, Sharon, when I retired, Sharon gave me the best advice of anyone for retirement. Um, she just kind of went through all these practical things that I should be, keep in mind about um, living in retirement and you know, managing your money and all, all, all kinds of stuff, which was awesome. Um, Arnold Schwarzenegger was definitely the biggest surprise for me because I come from a democratic family. I had been a very uh, partisan Democrat certainly up to that point. Um, you know, he was instrumental in the recall of my boss, Gray Davis, and in costing me my job. Um, you know, it was Maria Shriver, the first lady who first approached me. And she, of course, was a Democrat from a prominent Democratic family, the Kennedy family. So that didn't made it not an easy no um, coming from Maria, but I was still very skeptical about him didn't even really like his movies very much, to be honest. Um, <laughs> just I know, you know Kindergarten yeah. Cop, I think, was the only one I liked. I <laughs> <laughs> I'll let him know you you like that one. Um, Maybe it was twin. <laughs> anyway, okay, go ahead. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so I was hesitant, honestly, and I, I ended up losing some friends over uh, going to work for him, from mostly friends from the Davidson days. Uh, my family were not happy. My parents were not happy about it at all, going to work for a Republican. Um, I don't know if you guys were aware of this, but uh, the LA Times surprised me when my announcement about my hiring came out as Maria's chief of staff, because I had really only agreed to work for her um, and not work directly with Arnold. But when you work for the first lady, you really work for the governor. So the LA Times came out with a story about my hiring and um, asked me point blank if I was going to vote for him. And I wouldn't say ah. that I was going to vote for him. I just couldn't because I was in my head. I just thought about my parents. I thought, oh, my gosh, they, you know, I, I barely stayed in their good graces by pointing out that Maria was a Democrat and all that. If I'm in the LA Times saying I'm voting for a Republican, you know, they're going to disown me. So I wouldn't say. So that comes out in the LA Times that I wouldn't say I was going to vote for him. And I still didn't know Arnold Schwarzenegger at all. He calls me and invites me to lunch at a cafe, his favorite place in, in LA, which I think is called Roma. And I thought he's going to fire me because, you know, the governors I had worked for up to that point, if you publicly said in the LA Times that you weren't going to vote for him. That's, you know, that's it. So I thought, well, this will be interesting. <laughs> so I went to LA. I met him for lunch. Get lunch so, yeah. I got a great lunch and um, he was completely, you know, fine with it. He just, you know, kind of laughed it off and said, so you're going to be working for Maria. Gave me some pointers for working for Maria, which were hilarious. Um, and I thought, and I came away from that thinking, that's something new for me. Someone who, um, I guess maybe he's so comfortable in his own skin or confident or something that he doesn't really care whether I'm voting for him or not. He still, still seemed kind of excited about working with me. And that was the beginning of a changed relationship uh, with him, which, you know, to fast forward to today, I'm good friends with Arnold Schwarzenegger. We stay in close touch. Um, we care a lot about each other. I found him in the end to be a kind, generous a uh, very forgiving boss. Like he's the one I never could get in trouble with no matter what I did wrong. He's just, um, just very good natured that way. Kind of blew all my stereotypes of what, what I thought I knew about him. We still disagreed on a lot of policy issues, you know, from Parson point of view, but we also, I, I was able to work on some things I really believed in and cared about with him too. So I don't know, that's a long-winded way to saying they're all different. Um, you know, I, I came to respect and like uh, something about all of them. Um, and to stay friends with all of them. And so 
it's it's been a real privilege to have been part of that. You know, on the outside looking in at Schwarzenegger, I thought when he first came up to Sacramento, uh, he could do anything he wanted. He was amazingly popular. A, a crowded news conference before he came along where the governor might have eight or nine cameras and I don't know, 30, 40 reporters. He comes up and he's got 300 plus cameras that had over the Memorial Auditorium that wanted to be present. And he had um, four or 500 press credential requests, I was told, including the Frankfurter Zeitung and an Austrian papers, you know, papers from Argentina. It was just amazing how many people wanted to see this guy. And he had a celebrity. He just, it seemed like he could have just um, kind of ruled the world there. And I'm not quite sure how that all, that changed. Uh, relatively quickly, but it was pretty, it was interesting to watch from the outside, you know? I yeah. still wonder, you know, I still wonder if he'd have been born in the United States, if he wouldn't have been president. I mean, he had that kind of popularity. Yeah, but, I think yeah. so too. I think during the first three or four years, especially, I think, yes. Yeah, I think he could have. Yeah. I agree. I, and actually, you know, again, from having seen him up close, I think he would make a good president. I think that's, that's our loss. Yeah. Um, the other one who I, you know, I shared with you, I didn't work as closely with or at the high level, but um, I often find myself thinking about is if Jerry Brown had been president. I mean, especially, you know, now we have an older uh, president and I think about Jerry, like he just would, you know, he's really remarkably good at governing yeah. and holding stuff together in difficult situations. So um, I guess that's something we'll never know, but, uh, but I wonder uh, if he might have been an extraordinary president. You know, when you worked for him uh, at a more of a junior level, he was amazingly politically driven, ambitious. He was all over the place. He'd run for president, I think, in what, in 78, uh, 76? He, 76. 76. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, when he, Jimmy he, Carter was nominated. Yeah. And he, he was all, you know, he was everywhere. But the second, the Brown 2-0, the second two terms he did when he was elected at 2010, he was much more centered, much more organized. Uh, it seemed to me a lot more linear, seemed pretty effective. Uh, he just seemed like a lot different. He was quite, age mellowed him or age improved him or maybe his wife improved him. I don't know how all that played out, but he was much different. Later I totally agree. different than earlier Brown. Yeah. I totally agree. And I think part of it, it's the things you said, but I think it's also learning on the job. You know, he's the one who had the opportunity to, um, to try it once for two terms, then have a long period in between to do local government and BAG and explore all kinds of things about himself and the world um, and then come back and get to do it again. And I think it showed, you know, just, it was, the, it was, it was really experience and um, yeah, remarkable. Now, now I loved him for his boldness when he was a young governor uh -huh. at the time, you know, being young myself, um, he was breaking down barriers left and right, taking chances and, and risks. And in some ways I think kind of uh, expressing what it means to be a Californian to um, challenge the norms. And uh, so I think that was all terrific, but, but it, it, it had mixed results. You know, the public, um, there's evidence the public tired of that after at first Rose, kind of- Rose Bird for one example. I'm glad you brought her up. You know, she, um, I, I'd like to see more written and uh, uh, explored about her career because she's, what an interesting person. I know. You know, you know she, um, you could, you know, you could say that she, sacrificed her power and prestige for her principles. Absolutely. She was, you know, obviously had very strong feelings about the death penalty, which I share, um, that not only cost her her career at a fairly young age, 
but took down some others with her. Yeah. And as you say, definitely damaged Jerry. But um, but I'm fascinated by her because uh, and and what I've heard, what little there is out there available, is that she lived the later part of her life in uh, kind of remarkable humility, doing legal services for lower income people. Um, in an environment where many people didn't know she was a former chief justice of the, of the California Supreme court. Wow. And you know, an interesting thing, this is kind of down in the weeds, but we do our top 100 publication once a year. And a few years ago, we did a riff on the Sergeant Pepper's lonely hearts club band. It was 50 years after that record had come out. So I remember that was very clever. Yeah. And it was, it was uh, totally unoriginal, but uh, you know, everybody else. Good idea is always worth stealing as we say at Capitol. Amen. Precisely. So we put, all these people on there and they were all people with California history. And one of the people that we put on there was Rose Bird. And Rose Bird was not a public figure in California that long ago. Rose Bird was one of the least recognized people on that entire cover, which shocked me. We got emails from people, who is this lady? I can't, I can figure out everyone else. I can't figure out who this lady is. And it's like she just disappeared from the public awareness. Yeah. I mean, she did die a long time ago, but- uh, But it's like was, she was canceled. It's like she was canceled because yeah. um, it was in nobody's interest, ultimately, you know, once the, the, uh, her opponents had kind of dis- dispatched her, um, the Democrats didn't want to talk about her anymore. But it's, isn't that fascinating? Because she, everybody in California knew who Rose Bird was. Absolutely. There were bumper stickers everywhere with her name on them, yeah. most of them disparaging. Yeah. Um, you know, she was like the woman men loved to hate before Hillary Clinton. Like people hated her <laughs> uh, and blamed her for everything. And there were conspiracy theories about her and all kinds of interesting things. So I'd like to see, you know, I, I was thinking like the California Hall of Fame should think about inducting her posthumously because she certainly meets the standard of somebody, you know, famous in her time who, uh, well, and who, the first female chief justice, if nothing else. Yeah. 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 So that, that was, I, I, that didn't do Jerry Brown very much good politically, but as a young person, idealistic about politics, I was super impressed that he was willing to take those kinds of risks. He, he pointed the first openly gay people in the nation to anything. Um, he was, he and Ted Kennedy, I would say were the, the national leaders who uh, first allied themselves with the LGBT community in the seventies when nobody else was, you know? Mm-hmm. So I was grateful for that. He appointed Sheldon Anderson, I think was his name to the UC Regents who was openly gay. And that was a big controversy to have a gay well, person on the Regents. You're talking about uh, his history and him learning on the job. One of the things he did that I find the most fascinating is that he was willing to go back and take a lower office. He had been governor, then he goes back and he's AG, and then he's even a mayor of a city. And I'm kind of a history nerd, and I look back on the early days of the of the nation, and that was something I think that was intended to happen. And in fact, I think it was uh, John Quincy Adams, if I remember right, was president, and then later was in the legislature, was in Congress, if I remember right. And... I really think we're missing something by not having that be more common. I mean, wouldn't it be great if, if Barack Obama was back in the Senate or if why in the world can Hillary Clinton not hold elected office again, but it would be seen as sort of a, a step down if she were to get back into the, the hurly burly of, of electoral politics. And I think that's a real failing, this idea that you can't go back to lower office and 
Brown threw that out the window and I think was very successful as a, as a mayor and was more successful as a governor later because of that experience. And I really wish more people were willing to do that. And I just, you know, that's something we really see here with term limits. Some people were kind of mixing it up and if Holly Mitchell going to the board of supervisors, which ostensibly is a step down, however, has a much larger constituency than she ever did as a state Senator. So, uh, but it's just something I wish as a country, we were more willing to do and, and to see that as a possibility. And, and Brown was one of the first people in the modern era to really do that. A hundred percent agree with you. And I, and I think that humility is a, is a quality of leadership that we need more of. Um, and that particular practice, I think, is just was really wise on his part, you know, and I wouldn't be at all surprised if Jerry Brown thought about the historical context you just mentioned. You know, the, the man is so well versed in history and thoughtful about everything. Um, he's also a Jesuit. And, uh, you know, in our faith, humility is uh, something we're supposed to practice, especially when we're you know, exalted to these positions of, of uh, high ego gratification like he was. So I, I think that was just marvelous that he did that and, and ended up serving the state and serving him well. You know, in my own small way, I tried to, to follow his lead on that. Jerry Brown had a big influence on me, even though, as I said, I didn't work as, at a high level with him like I did others. I was young and impressionable. So um, everything he did uh, had an influence on me. And, um, you know, when I took the job as Maria Shriver's chief of staff, a lot of people told me, you don't go from being cabinet secretary to being the first lady's chief of staff. That's a uh, party planner job. Um, that's a step down. It's nowhere on the org chart, you know, the power players in the horseshoe. And, um, you know, it, it was a great decision on my part. First of all, I had a great time working with Maria. She was an ex exceptional person in that position. Um, so for that alone, it was a good decision. But it also ended up, you know, putting me back in, in a seat of influence as a senior advisor to Arnold Schwarzenegger in a roundabout way. Um, by, I would like to think, exercising a little humility. So I, I, I recommend that to people all the time. You know, I have young people call me sometimes and say, this job looks good to me, but it feels like a step down. And I just say, you know, forget about that. Ask yourself, is it something that calls you that you want to do, you want to learn from, and the rest will take care of itself. And I, I, I absolutely believe that. Hey, uh, Daniel, one last question. Uh, if you had any, if you had your pick of jobs in government to hold, what would your what would your choice be? What would be you think your the best job for you? Give you the most satisfaction and have some fun doing it, and learn and that kind of thing. What would you like to do? Well, you know, I actually have one now that I really like. I'm uh, on something called the Delta Stewardship Council, which wow. oversees uh, water policy issues. Um, is focused on the Delta which I'm loving because it's a part-time job, but I'm, I'm having to learn a lot because I never got to go deep in uh, these very complex issues of water policy and climate change and all that. So, so I'm actually loving that. The one job I never had that I always thought about um, that I think would have been great fun was secretary of appointments for the governor, because you oh, get yeah. to match up talent with opportunity. And, you know, at any given time, there are hundreds of vacant positions in state government um, and I think, you know, literally millions of people out there who haven't been tapped for their talent, uh, especially in communities that aren't kind of connected to we insiders. Um, so just thinking for me about the enormous pool of talent in 40 million Californians um, and being able to match them with challenges and opportunities in government uh, would be super fun. We have a great appointment secretary now, uh, Catherine Rivera. 
Um, and that's a job I always thought would have been fun that I just didn't get around to. Well, maybe there's still time. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't think so. Thank, you. thank you very much. Thanks for joining us. It was and my pleasure, you guys. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, we'll catch you next time around.